Hello, Tribesters and Extended Tribe. This is another episode of Conscious Leaders, a series all about the world of work with leaders and their advisors, talking about stories of doing things differently and winning. So today I am very, very excited to welcome one of my oldest, not in terms of age, but in terms <laughs> of years of friendship, one of my oldest friends, I know her as Lizzie, Lizzie Naiman, but she, for all of you, is Liz Moulton. And she is a powerhouse in the world of executive search. Um, Liz and I, I think, have known each other for what? Since we were five, probably. Um, she's one of, yeah, she's one of those people that was always destined to do great things. She's someone that I've always admired and someone that I've always known, no matter what, whatever she was up to, she was going to succeed. Um, so just to toot her own horn, she's been recognized for her work recruiting women leaders into significant executive roles within the top leagues, teams, technology, and media organizations. She also was awarded Sports Business Journal's Game Changers Award for her successful efforts in diversity searches, and that was in 2018. There's so much more I could tell you about her bio, but it's much better to just have the conversation with her. So Lizzie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Gretty. Okay, so let's kick off with you. You've obviously had a very, very successful career. I would love to know how you got into this and how your career has developed. Oh goodness. Well, I have a very serendipitous way of getting into this career. I was recruited off an airplane. So I sat next to a fabulous woman who is a leader at um, a, one of the major executive search firms and just an overall wonderful person. You know, it's so funny. The reason we started talking was because we both hate turbulent flights and it was a super turbulent flight. So we started doing that name game and she had gone to college with a good friend of ours from growing up, Greg Lane. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so it's one of those small world stories, another rise story. And by the end of the flight, she had recruited me into executive search, which I didn't know much about. And previous to that, what were you doing? You were in education for a bit. I was in edu Well, after 9-11, um, where you and I were both um, very affected and living in New York City, and I remember those days together, mm. I went into teaching. I wanted to do a teaching program and sort of like a teach for America. I just wanted to give back because I felt like if I didn't do it then and then in this world crises of crises of confidence and then I probably wouldn't do it at all. <clears throat> I, I always thought I'd go into business or something much more like capitalistic, but I was worried that I would lose a part of me if I didn't try. So I taught high school in an immersion program where I like taught from day one. I went to um, graduate school and teacher's program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and then got my master's in leadership there as well. And then I was doing another, another Rye friend of ours recruited me into essentially like boutique consulting, but it was to nonprofit organizations and healthcare organizations, which really wasn't exactly my passion, but he, um, he at least got me started on my journey of the, the business, the business mind. And that's when you were in DC. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's funny how actually network still has a big thing to play, a big reason for people getting into certain roles and being able to move throughout the business world. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. Okay. 
just thinking about executive search, because you obviously have, you're recruiting at a very senior level. Was it really hard to get into that room? Did you have to have lots of training or has that just come naturally for you? Uh, well, I joined a preeminent search firm where they train you quite well. So, and a place I thought I'd stay for a long, long time, but I, I don't know. It, my journey has been a little bit more like, I, I call it a lattice career where you gather a bunch of interesting experiences together, but I was trained quite well. And because of the nature of a big search firm, they're in the room themselves. So you just have to, I remember the president of Georgetown University, who's one of my very first clients, I'm a Georgetown alum, as you know, said, you just have to keep showing up. And it was true. It's like you show up and you gain your confidence and you gain your voice and you build on it. But interestingly, when you get to a search firm you have to focus on, it's almost like being a law firm. It's a lot like being a law firm or an investment bank where you have to focus on the sector you want to major in. And I decided pretty early on, I was going to do something that was considered white space, which was the sports industry. It was white space because a lot of search firms weren't covering it as a sector and or industry. So I, that was really knocking on some doors and getting some very important meetings with very high level executives. And I looked different. I spoke differently. And I, then the, then the peers who were doing sports in the broader executive search industry. And so I think that was a bit of a breakthrough was being able to differentiate myself. And I'm sure being a woman, you're one of the few <clears throat> that it was yeah, in a ma more male dominated area. Oh, it's completely male dominated. It's completely dominated in the ways of, you know, the ways our world are now is, is now probably moving away from, which is older, successful white men, but no offense to older, successful white men, many of whom we love very much. But um, <clears throat> in that, in that instance, it needed new creative thinking because what happens with that, with the, 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 of the many things like that happen when you're in that kind of insular um, of an industry is the insular thinking. So they were only bringing in leaders and old boys network of people they knew. And executive search is really, as an executive search consultant or partner at a firm, you're advocating, you're not representing candidates, but you're advocating for their candidacy. And so it's more natural at times for people of certain generations to advocate for those who they, they know versus to try and be more creative about it. So being a woman completely differentiated me. And it was, it was, it's actually been one of the most, um, important pieces in my career. You know, there are a lot of women in, in, in my industry and, and, you know, in fashion and others who say, I'm not a woman leader, I'm a leader. And that's true. But I always say I'm a woman leader because I think it's really important distinction. It hasn't been easy to build as a woman at times. I had faced a lot of challenges in that old boys network. And I think it's distinguished me as someone who uh, has different intuition and a different ability to to cut through a lot of the preconceived notions. I mean, I guess if you're able to use that as a way to propel you forward, it's mm -hmm. it's great, but there's probably a lot of women that almost take a step back because of being, being, you know, not being a man and being in a sector that's dominated by men. So you almost have to have the personality to be able to use it in the right way. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've now taken a role in-house. Can you talk about this a little bit? 
So yeah, so as I, I alluded to, I started a preeminent search firm and ended up going to one or two others, which is really funny because as you know, speaking to a friend of mine for over 40 years, and as you know, I'm someone who really sticks with things for the long haul, but I've just had these different experiences come to me and I've really grasped them. So I went from one search firm to another to really capitalize on the sports industry and be in the preeminent sports practice of a search firm. And then I built a sports practice, sports and and related field sports practice, another search firm, which I love this firm called Spencer Stewart. I love the firm, love the people, fantastic chairman and CEO who I still talk to and just hold in such high regard. But COVID hit two years into me being there and the sports industry as people probably know just shut down, right? Actually Adam Silver and the NBA were at the forefront of shutting down. And then once that happened, the rest of the world started cascading and domino effect. And I had a CEO of a gaming and esports company who I'd known through various circles ask me for a while to come in house to help him rebuild and redo what he was doing. He, he indicated there was some challenges around diversity and, and diversifying from where we recruit and diversifying how we recruit. And, and he was very passionate about changing the culture. So it was this amazing in-house assignment that I took, not, I think, very, in a very difficult way. I remember it was the beginning of the pandemic. Everybody was emotional and where is this going? And I was a really hard decision. I remember a lot of very sleepless nights, a lot of crying um, over it because I loved the firm I was at, but I just felt like this was such a unique experience. I'd never been on that side of the table. I had never been in a big company advising the CEO and the president and the business unit presidents hands-on. And I thought that I would be that much better coming out of it. Was there, I mean, it sounds like there was, but just to hear it from you, was there sort of a gut feeling leading you in that direction? Yeah, it was really, it was really hard that gut feeling because, um, I'd found this place in Spencer Stewart that I loved so much and, and the people I felt I really jived with and jive with, and I felt finally a culture. It had taken me a long time in my adult life to find like where I was supposed to be from a cultural perspective, environment perspective. You and I have talked a lot about college and, and that wasn't a place I always felt totally I belonged. And then in my early twenties, I was finding myself and I was just trying to find who I really was, which happened to me later in life. I think some people are born more knowing exactly who they are. And so, um, I knew that while I was at a organization and in a culture that was really good for me, that I had to have some growth and authenticity in what I was advising and doing. And that I would always feel a little bit like I couldn't be 150% successful if I didn't at least know what it was like to walk in the shoes of the leaders who were doing this on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yeah. Because as, a, as someone in executive search, mm-hmm. you can advise on who the best recruit will be, who could sort of step into a position, but you don't have the long-term partnership with that CEO. I know and I craved being a part of it, meaning seeing it through beyond a month or two. And I also crave this knowledge of understanding, you know, with leadership, it's so dependent. People are planted in different, different pots and you could be a really amazing leader, but you're just planted in the wrong pot. So how do you figure out where you're going to thrive and grow? And frankly, from the the company perspective and business perspective and shareholders perspective, who is the right fit to really take that company to wherever it needs to go, whether it's a turnaround situation or a growth situation. So I wanted to 
be immersed in that. And it's been, I mean, despite some of the real crazy, hairy situations I found myself in the past couple of years, some of which I anticipated, some of which I could never anticipate, it's been absolutely the most formative thing I've done in terms of being an executive advisor. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of some of the things that you've needed to tackle and what the big learnings were for you in those situations? Oh my gosh. So I had spent so much time in core sports, so leagues and teams, and um, and that's like working with the commissioner of the NFL or the commissioner of Major League Soccer, who's a really wonderful leader and chairman of Proskauer, the biggest sports-focused law firm. Um, but I hadn't worked with a tech founder. And this was essentially, at, it's Activision Blizzard, as, as you well know, um, essentially as a founder, he cobbled together some assets and he's become wildly successful because of it. And it has the tech mentality of growth, 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 sometimes forsaking culture in the spirit of um, spiking as much as possible um, in terms of profits and growth. And what's interesting on the tech founder it's a lot like other types of leaders. And I actually see it even my own husband who will talk about is sometimes they're, they are not always told the truth or they're not always advised very closely. And, and trust me, sometimes they don't always want to know the truth or they'll take the truth and then they'll kind of compartmentalize it. So how do you influence and change somebody who's so used to succeeding in a certain way? And frankly, you can't argue with what their success has been. And then when you see people get to this level of success, I think they're inevitably, no matter where they come from, there's a detachment from the reality of like how the rest of us live. And that has been one of the biggest challenges for me is taking not only our, our CEO, but a bunch of the other executives who come, who've come up through huge success and huge monetary success and trying to convince them to do things differently. And how did you do that? How do you do that? <laughs> uh, if there's anyone that can, if there's anyone that can, it is you. I know that. I would say only par partially successfully and partially not because you have to pick and choose your battles. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges for me has been that there's just never going to be the extent of change I would like. But uh, it, it, it mainly because I think I've learned that there, there are eras for leaders. I, I knew this in executive search at Spencer Stewart and at um, Corn Ferry, but I I really learned it here, which is like change of leadership evolves organizations more than anything else can. So, um, and there's different eras, but I think that I'm one of the good things about going in house for an assignment and we agree to two years, potentially three years, but, but, but not much longer is that um, I can be very honest. There's not the political, I don't have the political worry. Like, oh, if I say this to the president, he might, really backlash. It, I don't really, I'm just lead with total honesty and authenticity. I think where I've struggled though, is at times you worry it's not going to be effective. So you don't do it. Like you don't have the courage of conviction, meaning there's times where I should have probably spoken up even more. And I was like, well, I just don't think it's going to matter. So I'm just going to you know, yeah. and that doesn't do right by people. So I've had situations with bringing in executives who didn't fit or we didn't do right by them as a company. And rather than speaking up and trying to change the ways I've sometimes let it be. And that complacency is, is not good. And do you know that you're doing that right away? And are you, I guess I'm trying to understand is there, is there a reason you're doing that at that specific moment? Well, I mean, to be specific, so I think where I can act apolitically, right, which is 
I'm just here to be an expert in the room and to tell you what best in class companies are doing. I think I'm in any company, you're surrounded by people who have different political motivations. So sometimes you feel like you have one conversation and it falls really flat. You know, you have those conversations internally and you're like, I really don't think X, Y, and Z is, is, is going very well. And the person sort of receives it in not the best way. They either feel personally offended or they feel like you're, I often say, I say this to my team of people because I built an entire, you know, very dynamic team of people. It's like leaving a dead bird on someone's desk. It's like, here you go. Here's a dead bird. Now deal with it. And that does not go over well with people, nor should it, right? Because it's like, okay, thank you so much for that input. But now I have to deal with this big thorny problem. So I've, I think I've shirked away from some really tough conversations, but I would say the majority I've really gone through with because it's what I'm here for. And it's my purpose. It's my purpose in life. I bet, you know, my purpose is to really help people create change. I, I change, I evolve. I'm not someone that works, has worked someplace for 25 years. I've had different chapters in my life. And I think I'm here to help people advocate for change. Yeah. And I think that's such a beautiful thing because actually, if we all think that we get to a point and that's it, then that's not great for the collective. Actually, we're all evolving. And with each step, with each day, with each breath, like it's a constant evolution for all of us. Um, I would love to dig into teams and culture because you've talked about leadership, era of leadership, creating culture. Um, Let's just start with your specific team because you've created a team where in the role that in this in-house role, um, how did you grow, go about creating your team and getting oh, them on board with your message? Yeah. So what's interesting at search firms is you, it's like being at McKinsey or BCG, you have your little project teams and you hire a bit and you have a lot of input into reviews, but this was like fire, hire, grow. I mean, I, when I came in, the CEO was like, you need to you need to turn over that whole team. We are out. I was really hesitant for a bunch of, I think, studied thoughtful reasons to not blow everything up right away. Cause I think that does so much to, to create chaos that is unproductive in a company, but I probably was a little slow at times to move people out who really just weren't in the right places. Meaning they were probably talented people. They just weren't good at what we were doing, which is executive search, advising executives, recruiting, helping manage the onboarding of the executives like that, that takes a very certain skill set. So, um, I went with a little bit of instinct at first and hired a couple of people. I knew one of whom was my comp- a competitor of mine in the market when I was at Spencer Stewart and Corn Ferry, another of whom was a recommendation from a wonderful colleague of mine. And he had worked with him over the years. So I started like a couple of maybe pillars and started building from there, but we ended up building an almost 30 person team. And, I have to say, amidst some of the rockiness that Activision Blizzard's experienced, and some of it's just come out and used the depths of, you know, allegedly the depths of how bad the culture had been way previous to me being there. Um, I think the best thing I've done is keep this team happy, motivated, and, and feeling empowered. Uh, it's not easy to recruit executives to a company where people are saying, well, what's going on with that company? That's not easy to do. Yeah. But so when you onboarded them and when you, I guess, when you recruited them, how did you create a diverse team? Because diversity was something you actually talked about earlier. 
Um, well, as you know, as, as we've talked about, I'm, I'm very, a big advocate for other women. You know, when I started in my career, I had a couple women leader, women, um, guide me and mentor me. And then a couple women who really had come up through such hard knocks that they really weren't into guiding other women. So I, of the team, I hired two really outstanding women, uh, one person of color, um, a person from financial services, um, a person from the creative world. So just people of different backgrounds and different walks of life Mm -hmm. and um, try to honor that too in the different parts of the team. So the people who are researching um, the executives, people who are sourcing and reaching out to the executives, I think we have a really diverse team. And then what we really focused on was diversifying and it's part of our mandate, part of the mandate of me coming in to Activision Blizzard, but uh, diversifying our slates of people interviewed our candidates. Um, and I think we have like a 94% rate of diversity in terms of the, our slates of candidates. And then when you're working with your team, do you have a certain way of working or a certain way to organize <clears throat> them and organize yourselves as a team? It's funny, we, we've, or I've orged and reorged a couple of times. Right now we're in this pod model, which is essentially a principal who's like the most senior recruiter on the team who has usually a functional area like marketing or commercial or technology or game development. And then an executive recruiter who's like a principal in training and um, associate researcher and an executive assistant or recruiting coordinator. But I've really that's something I've really tinkered with. And probably because I'm on the newer end of being a executive, a, a leader of a big team. Um, but I would say the one thing that I think has been really successful is I've been extremely authentic and transparent with my team the whole way through. So I know that's not the question around organ or how we organize ourselves. No, that was sort of, that was actually sort of what I was trying to get at. What are your, what's your style with them and how do you build a strong team? Very communicative. And, um, like yesterday is Juneteenth, as you know, and as you know, my husband's a social champion. He said, I can't believe your company doesn't have Juneteenth off. I said, you know, I know. He said, especially everything that you guys are going through, you should have it off because it's about honoring our, you know, the past that people have come to get here today. And it's, um, I have, I have very diverse teams. So I wrote to everyone and said, I know we don't technically have this day off. I really think it would be a shame to not honor it in some way. So please, please take the time, please take some hours in the day. And that I think is a bit of my hallmark. I'm very, I'm, I'm okay. Even though I work on behalf of a big, a big publicly traded company, I'm okay to diverge a little bit and honor people and make people feel heard and empowered. And when we were going through this really rocky time in September, October, November, where this, these big wall street journal articles hit, I would just let people talk. And I would give them my perspective and I would share my disappointment because here I am hoping I can make change in the world. And then I'm struggling. How do I work in a company where this, some of this has gone on, where there's purportedly all this, all this bad activity, horrific activity that's oppressed or suppressed. Um, so I just, I'm not one of those leaders. I think that like puts on a face and then has internal, I, I share what my own feelings and turmoil are. Um, and what are some of the other traits that you see of a good leader and you identify as a good leader? I am very focused on setting people on the right path. So we've had multiple instances where 
I, I just had, I have this amazing head of operations who is really like a, almost like a chief of staff for me in terms of organizing the activity of our executive practice group, which is expanded from recruiting to recruiting, executive talent management, executive coaching, succession planning. So my, my job grew and my path grew. And our chief talent officer, who is um, a great um, a, a great colleague of mine, someone I work really closely with, he really wanted to take her and make her the t- overarching talent, which is all of talent, right? It's everything from entry level all the way through up what I do in executive. And I embraced that and wanted her to take that role. I'm very focused on empowering people to get to a path that is the right for them, even if it forsakes, um, you know, it hurts me, I guess, personally, or hurts our team. You know, when I was leaving Spencer Stewart and I was so upset and so conflicted about what to do, and I'm sure it was like all this emotion about what was happening with the pandemic, I... The CEO, Spencer Stewart, I had some people who didn't say such wonderful things, but um, most really did. And the CEO said, although it doesn't help Spencer Stewart for you to go, because we love having you here, you are so talented and you are someone who's going to be plucked to go from place to place. And I don't want to hold you back because it's part of your journey. And that was saying that to me meant so much because it's easy for a leader to say, Gret, um, I need you here on this team. Like you need to stay with me. And then that's basically holding you back on your journey. Yeah. Yeah. I actually got the chills when you were saying that. It almost reminds me of like when you're dating someone, when we, when we used to date people, when we, before we were married, like if they really cared about you, they'd let you go spread your oh wings. That should be another, uh, I can give you a dissertation on that stuff. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> um, I want to get back to culture because you're obviously in a business now that doesn't necessarily have the most positive culture, but you're creating a different culture within your team. That's right. Um, Yeah. And so how then you use that to then, um, how you go about using your team culture to maybe inspire and um, support other teams and create a broader culture is, or is that even possible? Can, can a team then help expand a culture or is it more top down? No, I think, I think that in challenging cultures, you can create microcultures. And I think that happened in search firms and Corn Ferry is another one that has a very challenging macro culture, but you can create little, little, almost like safe havens, your own little microcultures. I did it there. Now, Spencer Stewart has an overarching, very good culture. So it was a bit easier to do. Here's my daughter. <laughs> we love children. We love dogs. We love anyone that likes to visit because this is reality. <laughs> <laughs> this is life, right? Hold on, let me just close my door. <laughs> that was like on cue for busy mom. Um, I know this is so, life, and don't worry, we're gonna get to that question about how do you juggle it all, juggle it all. Yeah, but we're gonna come like, to that later. And you're wearing like a nice shirt and yoga pants, like as we all do as we sit here. It's like I'm like, oh, I hope they see my yoga pants. So. Um, what was I just were we talking about? Um, oh, yes. I think like it's extraordinarily important to do. And I really think our microculture, and this isn't just because of me, and these principal recruiters that I re- recruited one came from Wells Fargo, which does not have an amazing culture, but he is this amazing guy that created good cultures. Um, another who is from the creative background as an artist himself is like full of emotion and love for people. So I feel like we created this harmonious culture. And now the entire talent organization really 
sees it a lot because of the chief talent officer that we hired that is just a wonderful guy. And I think he tries to take it and model it. My other, other peer who's head of talent acquisition, which is like um, mid-level and below. So I think you can totally have a ripple effect. I think the challenge is, and this is definitely how does Activision Blizzard, there's only so much you can do because the overarching culture for various reasons, like you go into a long analysis is probably not going to change. Now, it's actually the best of all worlds has happened, in my opinion, where Microsoft has acquired Activision Blizzard. Um, and I think Microsoft doesn't have a perfect culture, but I think it has a very studied, Satya is a very um, academically minded person who looks at what great leadership is and who looks at what great cultures are. So I think it'll evolve and get even better. And what's your definition of great leadership? Um, well, I think there's a full honesty and self-awareness that's very hard to come by. And I said, I say this again, I even see it with my husband where I think he's evolving, but there's still pieces of his leadership as a member of Congress that you have to really learn hard lessons. So it's a humility and awareness, self-awareness, a lot of work. I think executive coaching is really important. I think probably, you know, as you know, some of my family, but psycho psychologist is very important too. But I think that is coupled with a nimbleness and an ability to admit you're wrong and to try new paths. So people quote really those very tried and true things like team of rivals. But what, what why people talk about something like team of rivals is because it places people around leaders who will tell them they're wrong or they should consider something else. Or, you know, and President Obama was famous for this and um, uh Arnie Sorensen Marriott was famous for this former CEO passed away at Marriott, which is like willing to listen to different perspectives and take in those perspectives and not thinking you're the smartest person in the room by any means. That's leadership. Yeah. And also I, I sort of think about it as, you know, there was a time when leadership was very top down and they had to make the decision. And I've been in, I've been in organizations yes. that it was very much that way. And everyone was sort of scared to, to be honest or to say, to give ideas and perspective. But actually, and I was listening to an amazing podcast a few weeks ago, about, and this guy from, um, where was he? I can't remember where he's from. He was at Google for a while. But um, he said, it was my job to hire the best people and train them. My job isn't to make their decisions. My job isn't to do their job. It's to make sure that they're able to, they have the ability to do their job. And I just thought that was, was that actually- Was Eric Schmidt? No. Was it Eric Schmidt? No, it was Google Google Labs. No, I'm. Mm. Anyway, I'll find it yeah. for you and I'll send it and I'll put it on the show notes so everyone else can listen Yay. to that. Episode of whatever it was a good one, um, but he talked yeah. a lot about I, leadership. I agree. Um, you know, Seth um, worked for General Petraeus, who's obviously a very renowned leader in the military, and he he has special assistants. Seth was one of them for a while. That he would have them go gather intel and go gather what was happening and feed it to him. So he was hearing what was happening on the ground. And by the way, he would honor, I think Seth was what, 26, 27, Seth's perspective as much as he might honor a general's perspective because they're both really important perspectives and it's each person can contribute really good ideas. Yeah. Um, I wanna switch a little bit to burnout, mental state of leaders and also of workers. I know we've talked about this, uh, just about the, the state of burnout and the well the culture of burnout in the States um, specifically. Uh, I just love yeah. to hear your opinion on this and your thoughts on well-being and burnout. 
I do think that a lot of Europe has it right in terms of really honoring people's lives wholly. I think, I think the U.S. is very enterprising and obviously I'm someone who believes highly in capitalism, but I think what happens is we ground people down a lot without honoring who they are. So I think that interestingly, the, uh, despite all of the many really terrible things about the pandemic, it, I think it had right-sized people's lives. And you see this, you hear about the great resignation, you hear about people making totally different shifts in their career. And I think it's because it was shown to us in this very vivid way, you, life is not just about work. It's about caring for your children who run in hysterically crying because they've been sick for a week. It's about caring for your elders who are, you know, my parents who I love so much, um, they were really, they've been really affected by the pandemic because they both have you know, certain conditions. They don't want to get COVID. So how do you care for them? How do you um, support your husband or your spouse who's trying to make a difference in the world or whatever it might be? And the pandemic really showed, it, showed us that in very stark terms. So I actually think there's more and more of what you're doing and Tommy's doing. I think what there's more and more of that momentum here in the States and it's extremely needed. And I also think generationally, that's what they will demand in terms of people joke about millennials or Gen Z, but they're so empowered in the positive. They're so empowered and so believe in who they are that they're not going to let companies dictate. They're going to dictate. And that's really good for empowerment and living the life you want to live is the way people really thrive. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, when I was going through my like exhaustion funnel being pulled down into burnout, I mean, I, I remember my mother saying, um, I think you might be burnt out. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. You didn't raise me to be, be someone that was burnt out thinking it was this negative thing. But actually I was just putting so much pressure on myself to do, 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 do thinking that was sort of the way that was what ex was expected. And maybe that was what success was, whereas actually I have a completely different opinion of it now just because of what I went through. And I think people can be hugely successful in what they deem as success, not society deemed as success, um, and have a really balanced, fruitful, happy, fulfilled life. And, and what does it, and you know, what does it matter at the end? Cause like, as I, I, I beat myself up over career decisions, like the Spencer Stewart to Activision decision. Now, what do I do when I roll out of Activision, um, whether soon or after, you know, as the acquisition is imminent and you're like, what does it really matter? Because at the end of the day, we all live our lives. We all get old, hopefully. <laughs> and we, and what does it matter if we've done as much as we think we should do or what is it, it it's like it's it all equals out in the end it's everyone's yeah. own journey and path and so you know one of the things I do which I honestly at times have had to fight feeling lazy about is so when Seth is home because as you know he's not home he's there months he's really not home much at all he will take the girls in the morning and I will lay just lay in bed with coffee and reading news or reading a, my book or whatever leadership book um until like nine o'clock I will not get out of that bed. I just kind of lie there. And it's so, so much self-care in it. But then you think to yourself, oh my God, it's nine o'clock. Like who lays in bed till nine o'clock? Like I'm, you know, 40 something years old. I've got two kids. I got, But it is the only way I can like restore. Mm. And if you I don't, you yeah, no, 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 go. Go. no, you don't take those moments. I mean, 
I, I will lose my mind. This week, I literally was on the precipice of losing my mind because of the sick kids and Seth was in DC. And, and if I don't do those little restorative things or like, you know, you know me, I like to get my nails done or my, get my hair blown dry. And like, I was reading this Instagram post yesterday that was like, put all the things down that fill up your, whatever, fill up your cup or whatever. And then write all the things that you do during day that deplete and make sure you're adding versus depleting. And it's so true because when you have those days where you're like, Emmy's crying and has 102 fever, deplete. You know, Caroline won't eat her food, deplete. Seth is nowhere to be found because he's doing a bill markup till two in the morning, deplete. If you just let that all deplete, or like, you know, Bobby or my CEO wants something that's really challenging for me, deplete. Like it, if you just let that happen, that's burnout. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny that you say that because I do an exercise with our members just on this. It's called drainers and sustainers. And actually I do it in some webinars that I run. It's like, we need to be aware of what fills us up just as much as what drains us. And of course there's going to be things that drain us. We can't get rid of them fully. There's always going to be something that's present, but you want to make sure that actually you're not giving up all those things that actually fill you up. Because once you do, once you say no to those things, that means you are running on empty and you are definitely heading to, towards burnout. And that's what I was doing. I was just saying no to all the things that I enjoyed and yes to all the things that I thought was expected of me. I remember you running flight to flight. You took so many inter intra European flights. I remember you're always going to different countries. I just remember you, you guys didn't live too far from Heathrow, but I feel like you had like a shuttle to Heathrow. Like it was I mean, just, I, I knew um, how to like yeah. get through an airport so quickly, yeah. <laughs> but the number of like 7am or pre 7am flights oh that I took I mean, and then you think having gone through COVID, oh my God, none of those, not many of those trips were that vital. There was a lot of things that we could have done virtually and then save those trips to actually be more, much more meaningful and have purpose. And that's what I'm much more conscious of now. I still have to catch myself because I have like a tendency to overwork and get overexcited to just do. You have since you were a competitive swimmer. <laughs> you You've had that well, for years and years and years. That's what I actually wanted to touch on because obviously you worked in the sports world and mm -hmm. this idea, mm -hmm. you, you sort of touched on it, this idea of restoring in mm -hmm. order to be able to perform and, and athletes have that, but mm -hmm. do leaders, do leaders have that? Do leaders have an understanding of the need to restore? I think more evolved leaders, I think more evolved leaders, I think as these generations come up and leave behind us, they will have a better understanding, but no, I think that, you know, especially our parents' generation or the generation, right? Maybe there's, well, our parents' generation kind of spans a bunch, but I think they were not taught that. They weren't taught that self-awareness. Like when we were growing up, you know, and as I mentioned this, as you well know, my mom and now my sister, psychologists, even psychology was seen as like a little bit. I remember someone's woo -woo. Like, yeah, it was woo-woo. And now it's like, uh, if you're not seeing a psychologist, like what's wrong with you? <laughs> because it, it, you need it. Right. But I remember my mom would swoop in and help these different families and families of ours that needed help. And it was like, Oh, cause they need psychological help, you know? And, um, I think that is an antiquated way of thinking, or like, I remember my dad and he had a big career, big career for a while, a long time. You know, he was having like a crisis of like, who am I? What do I do? Well, there's no executive coaches. There was no, even your colleagues, you didn't really talk to that about that because they're like, what do you mean? You just keep working, right? Like I can never see Demi Duckworth really like confiding in an executive coach, but it's just because it's generational, right? 
So I think that is um, that kind of self-care and that kind of gathering of input is really, really important. Do you tell your team what you're doing for your self-care? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm very open. I'm very open about my kids too, because, and some people, again, I'm a different type of leader, but some people don't, because I will say my kids have been sick for a week. It's the worst virus I've seen them have. I don't think it's COVID. Maybe it's COVID. Oh wait, it is COVID. You know, like I will tell them, I'll give them the play-by-play because I want them to feel that it's all normal to be going through these things. So um, I talk to them a lot about my family. I talk to them a lot about uh, taking time. I talk to them a lot about some of the afternoons, you know, that are really important to take. So yeah, I think there's this transparency and leadership that's really needed now. Yeah, and you're creating a psychologically safe environment for them to show up and be able to speak what's on their mind, contribute in a way that they're not afraid that they're going to be shot down. And actually, that's why you probably, that, that's definitely why you have a strong team and a team that wants to stay with you because it is safe and you've created a culture of safety within that team. Yeah, I hope so. I, that's yeah. really what I have to do. Yeah. And actually it's, it's psychological safety is something that we're getting talked. We talk to a lot of different businesses about, and, you know, some people want webinars on it. I'm like, I can't do a webinar on psychological safety. This is like, how do you, how do you create a safe environment? It's really working like you, it's, it's, you're being honest and open. And some people have that innately and some people um, it's a much harder process for them to, to be able to open up like that. One of the critiques I continue to give Activision Blizzard is it doesn't create a psychologically safe place. And some of that is because, you know, there's a couple of colleagues I think of in, in people or HR, which is the, you know, in my field where they'll say, Bobby needs this or Daniel needs this right away. And you're like, what does he need? And it's like, he needs this report. And there's no explanation and there's no grace about it. And that creates this feeling of fear. And this fear factor that trickles down new chief people officer came in last September and, you know, she has a lot of challenges. She's working on the transition. Um, you know, she'd be my boss working on the transition to, to Microsoft, but she will take a little bit more grace and a little bit more time to explain. And that removes this fear factor and this anxiety that when I first got there was, I mean, people were their shoulders were up, people were nervous, people feared, people feared backlash. And that was something I absolutely set out to change in any way I could. Yeah, fear can cause a lot of a lot of bad decisions, actually. Yes, totally. Um, let's just get a little bit personal since you've talked about Seth and your children a few times. Um, you are definitely a power, power couple. Um, you're married to a congressman who is very busy. You have two young girls. Um, clearly you have a lot on your plate. So I know I want to know, but also I know our audience will want to know how you manage it all. Well, as you and I were discussing before we started taping, I was 10 minutes late to this. I was wolfing down some terrible protein bar because I hadn't had a chance to eat breakfast. Um, you know, I think it's really hard to manage. Like, I just think it's, um, there are days and weeks where I say to Seth, like, I do not think I can do this for another week. I mean, just in terms of 
being on my own with the girls so much. We had a nanny quit a week or two ago out of the blue. I mean, these kind of things that happen make you just so exhausted. So I'm not really sure I, I do it extremely well. I think I take those moments for myself. I'm very focused on taking some of those moments for myself. And I try and use a lot of humor and grace with my girls and with Seth. I, you know, what's hard about being married to Seth is there's a bunch of things for Seth, but, um, He's a very, he, he has decided to live his life like at as high a calling and purpose as possible, which is super admirable if like you're his friend or his colleague, but it's not as admirable when you're his wife because you're like, okay, let's just take it down a couple of notches and like decide who's going to market baskets to get food, right? So I think that, but so there's on the one hand, it's very inspirational to live with someone like him. And despite all the mis, you know, preconceived notions about politicians, like he's in it for very different reasons. He's a very like soulful, believe in doing your best and doing right by people. He's way more selfless than I am, <laughs> way more giving than I am, but it drains the family. You know, we're expected to, you know, last Friday, I had this terrible week of being sick myself and Emmy started being sick. And then I had to host like a 14 person dinner because it was all about helping another member of Congress. And you, I try and channel Seth in those moments to be like, it's about giving, it's about moving the world forward. But I'll tell you, I mean, there's times where you're like, I literally want to go move to like a bungalow on the beach and never talk to other people again, because I'm so exhausted by it. So then so in those times, answer. no, that's a good answer. That was totally honest. And I really appreciate that. In those times, what do you turn to? You obviously channel Seth, but like, how do you then replenish? Um, I turn to my girlfriends, our rye girlfriends. I turn to them a lot. Um, in just texting kind of ridiculous things. You know, you can always count on Lee or Aaron Alley to someone like that to text something hysterically funny. Uh, my sisters, I tend, to, you know, and it's interesting because like sometimes, you know, in marriage, you think like, he just doesn't get what I'm saying or it's not landing with him. And, you know, sometimes it's not going to. So you have to turn to people, you know, I, you know, you have a couple of super close friends from Dartmouth and friends from, like me from Rye and like, it'll land with us, right? So I think I turn to, those people who can really help support, not because my husband can't, but just because you want people who can empathize even more with who you are as mom and a career woman and a woman and all those things. Um, and then I turn to things like, I know this is so generic, but I do love playing tennis. I've always loved playing tennis. Um, so I try and do that. I try and even just like little Aaron, I said, this is so funny. It's so pathetic, but I was reading this also on Instagram. Clearly I turned to Instagram. And it's like, do you ever realize that like your little escape is going to do errands? And you're like, oh my God, how sad is that? But it's kind of true. Like when you can just like kind of bop around and be by yourself and not worry about kids. And so you turn to these little like soul-saving things, I think. Um, and then everyone says, I mean, cause you're, you're just a little bit ahead of me with the, with the boys, but you know, this too shall pass. It all passes, different phases come, different moments come, you know, Caroline will eat start eating better food instead of just eating whatever she's eating. Like, you know, this little bars is like all she wants right now. Um, and you'll go to kindergarten, like it, it'll pass and it'll keep evolving and keep like going through those waves. That's one of my favorite mantras. And actually when I went into, um, when I was promoted into my VP role, I remember being just so overwhelmed and I was managing people that used to be my peers. And that was hard. Yes. And someone said to me, she said, look, in six months, you'll have done one full season and you can say this too shall pass. And like, you're going to get through that. And then you're going to get onto another stage and another stage that's always stayed with me. It's a mantra that I, I often repeat to myself. 
My little sister was when I told me that when I first had Emmy and I was not good as a new, I mean, I really lost touch with friends. Um, I, I definitely had some postpartum something. I think it was very high anxiety, a bit of depression. So those first six months for me, I was like, for both babies was totally out of my mind. And I remember my little sister who, you know, very well wrote this too shall pass. And then I kept repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. And by the way, this too shall pass. That's for the good things too. When you're on a high and you think life is amazing, that passes too. And that's also something really good to remember. Like, and that makes you be in the moment and appreciate it now because who knows, it might not, it's not going to last forever. And then you go through another cycle and something else happens. It's so, you know, I always think about that in tennis, like when I'm, and I only play like a couple times a week now, I don't have that much time, but I'll like have this amazing shot and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm so good. I'm such a good person. I'm so good. And then the next time I like literally can't even hit the ball. So it's like the moment you think you're just like so great and everything's going so well, like just sit down and just wait. Your, <laughs> just, your, your ego is getting put in check. It always is put in check. Oh, Lizzie, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. And I, I, I could continue talking to ages. I just don't know if everyone wants to hear you and I start telling our five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old stories, (laughs) but thank you very much for sharing your time. You are very busy. I know, but you have offered so much wisdom, um, insight, and you are a spectacular person, a spectacular human being. And I feel very grateful to have you as a friend And I'm really grateful that you've been able to share your time with our members. So thank you. Thank you. This just filled me up. See this, you've replenished some of the energy that's been depleted. There you go. And put me on your WhatsApp list and you can message me anytime you're having some troubles (laughs) and I will do the same. Love you. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Thanks everyone. Until next time, be here and be well.